Does anyone know what time it is? In 2010, about 10 years ago, I got invited to speak at the Catalyst Conference in Georgia. It was more than 10,000 people in a crowded arena. They had just finished filming a commercial for Doritos. Don't ask. It was a great crowd. It was a fun day. I thought you might like to hear a recording from that from a long time ago. It's about Lynchpin. It's about your art. It's about making a difference. I'm really glad you're tuning in. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with that live recording, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth. Are you ready to turn pro? The Creatives Workshop is back. It's back because it works. It's our most engaged Akimbo workshop. It's a workshop for people who have something to say to write, to paint, to communicate. People who want to be creative. Come find the others. Learn what it means to see and be seen. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, The Creatives Workshop is here to help. I hope you'll check it out. It's at thecreativesworkshop.com. We'll see you there. Does anyone know what time it is? Of course you know what time it is. You have a watch. You have a cell phone with a clock on it. How come? How come you've got a watch? It's because the system demands you show up in the right place at the right time. The system's about organizing and maximizing, synchronizing, centralizing. The system is pretty new. It's only been 200 years that everyone knew what time it was. It's only been 150 years that we even had time zones. I have an announcement to make, and it may come as news to some of you. Some of you may have heard it from others before. Professional wrestling is fake. Now, somewhere along the way, Someone you trusted when you were eight or 10 or that guy over there, 42 years old, <laughs> told you that pro wrestling was fake and you believed them. And when you looked at pro wrestling matches from then on, they seemed different. You noticed that the elbow thrusts stopped one inch too soon. You saw the edges of the blood pack. You came to understand that there is a difference between what is and what you were expecting. That as soon as you realized the truth of what was going on, it became a lot easier to understand the artifice and the system of what was pro wrestling. So what I want to do today is really stretch your envelope. And I want to talk about something a lot more important than pro wrestling that affects all the elements of our lives, starting with the economy. The thing to understand is that the economy, the way our economy works, drives our culture. 4,000 years ago, when we were nomads in tribes of 150, moving from place to place to place, we had a spiritual life that matched that. We had a cultural life that matched that. When the Roman Empire showed up, 
It demanded a different way of living. It was a top-down, there's an emperor, there's one set of rules, everyone works for someone else who eventually works for someone in Rome. And then, when the economy shifted and there were princes and merchants and banks and imperialists and kings, our spiritual life shifted again, our cultural life shifted again. You could make a living as an artist working for the Medicis. Well, the life we know today is driven at every level by the economy we live in. It's hard to imagine that 10,000 or 13,000 or 15,000 smart people would get together to make a Doritos commercial. That's the economy talking. The economy changes the way we see things. So I want to tell you about my $40 billion mistake sitting on my desk in my office in a beautiful green box. And inside of it is a T-shirt that cost me $40 billion. In 1992, I was a book packager. I was a writer. I was writing cover stories for magazines, creating books. And I also had a little internet company before anyone you know ever had an internet company. We were sending email all around the world. We had a T1 line. We knew what the internet was about. I looked at that, and I said, I'm going to create a book called Best of the Net. 220 pages of articles and pictures of things you could find if you had Archie or Veronica or knew how to get around the net. And I sold it to a book publisher for $70,000. And I made the book publisher a bunch of t-shirts for their sales force. And Best of the Net went on to sell 850 copies. At the same time that I was doing that, Dave Philo and Jerry Yang started a company in California with the same resources I had, and they called it Yahoo. They saw the same thing I saw, but I was looking for a book idea, and they were looking to change the world. So now let's think about the record business for a minute. I don't know if you recognize this. This is called a record. <laughs> the record industry is over. It's broken. It's toast. Put a fork in it. It used to be perfect, perfect in so many ways, right? This thing here, I own it. If I lend it to you, I don't have it anymore. I have to buy another one. If I play it a lot and wear it out, I got to buy another one. If I go to the store, yes, they used to sell music in stores. If I go to a store to buy a copy, I get to see all the other ones and page through them and they can do payola, and there's radio, and the senior prom, and the yearbook, and on and on and on. It was perfect. And then it changed. And some people looked at the industry and said, well, if we try really hard and we sue all our fans, maybe we'll be able to get back to where we were. <laughs> and they were wrong. So where does this lead us? Well, Betty Crocker. Betty Crocker, fictional person, figured out that if she ran enough ads and was on the radio often enough, people would go to the store to buy her stuff. And so General Mills has produced billions and billions of dollars worth of Betty Crocker stuff on a model that says, if you have a product you want to sell, advertise it. If you have something you want people to pay attention to, yell about it. If you want to reach the masses, 
better make average stuff for average people. And she got help from her friend Henry, Henry Ford. Henry Ford figured out that a factory, a building organized to make something could be profitable if you have interchangeable parts so that you don't have to depend on one thing. If you have mass production, because what mass production lets you do is get more and more efficient. At one point, Henry Ford had shepherds who raised Ford sheep that produced Ford wool that was sheared to make and woven into Ford seats to put in Ford cars because he made money. He hired people who used to get paid 50 cents a day and paid them five bucks a day and made a profit doing it because the factory was so efficient. But in order to make it efficient, not only did he need interchangeable parts, he needed interchangeable people. Interchangeable people, because if you don't show up at work, I can have him take your slot. I don't have to shut down the whole factory. And so baked into our culture, for every person in this room who's under 80 years old, is the model that what you're supposed to do is build an organization with interchangeable people that gets bigger, that gets more impactful, that scales. So you know what factories led to? They led to school. Because factory workers were freaking out. Factory owners were freaking out. They were freaking out because, number one, it's really hard to train someone who's not expecting it to work in a factory. If you need workers, cheap workers, we better train them. You know where we train them? In school. School was invented by Andrew Carnegie and other industrialists to train our kids to be obedient, to train them to sit in straight rows, to train them to do what they're told and use a number two pencil while they're doing it. The other thing we train them to do is buy stuff, right? The best way to fit in, we say, is to buy stuff. Go to Abercrombie and buy stuff. That hit record, go buy it. Be in the inside group, fitting in, buying stuff, doing what you're told, was all invented to feed the factory system. So I want to tell you a really scary story. I was sitting with five straight-A students, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And I had with me, as I often do, I hope you often do, a Taiwanese perpetual motion drinking bird. <laughs> It's that little glass of water, and then the bird goes like this. Do you know what I'm talking about? I didn't bring slides. I hope it's okay. So the bird, drinking, 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 I set it up and I say, guys, how's it work? And they looked at it for about 15 seconds. I don't know, Seth, tell us. Ready to write down the answer in case there's a quiz. I don't need you to write down the answer. Wikipedia already did. I need you to figure out the answer. And they sat there for half an hour, struggling to even find the questions they wanted to ask. Because no one ever taught them how to solve interesting problems, how to do work without a map, how to develop, as the brilliant Dan Pink talks about, autonomy. Do you know why the factory wants you to fit in? So they can ignore you. Not just the factory that makes cars, but the factory that makes insurance policies and the factory that governs the country. And yes, the factory of the spiritual institution you work for. If it's about obedience and it's about interchangeable people and it's about org charts, 
We are reflecting what the factory did. The factory changed us. The factory put in our heads that what's valuable is a building, right? It used to be you needed a cathedral to be in the spirituality business. And as we got brainwashed into this factory mindset, we fell in love with this idea that the hard part is the physical part, the making part. I want to tell you about a guy named Tim who runs a really cool business online called the Custom Saber Shop. And what they make, of course, is lightsabers. <laughs> you can get them with or without sound effects. This one's without. <laughs> Here's the thing about a lightsaber. Making one is not hard. If you look at it, it's like a pipe and some duct tape and a couple nine-volt batteries. It's not hard. What's hard is inventing the idea of Darth Vader and the lightsaber. What's hard is figuring out that you want to initiate and start a business that makes lightsabers. There's no dummies book for that. There is nobody who says, these are the 18 steps to successfully go from, that's a neat idea, to I'm shipping it. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, in the world of Google, competence is no longer a scarce commodity. If you are a competent youth group leader, I can find someone else to do what you do cheaper. If you are a competent communicator, there's a long line out the door, easy to find. It used to be that if you were the only one in town, we had to settle for you. But now everything we care about is a click away. And so there's a problem here, a problem that's bordering on a crisis. And it's about bowling. I don't know if any of you are big pro bowling fans. I don't mean to offend you if you are. But not a lot of people are into pro bowling. The reason is pro bowling is about being perfect. Pro bowling is an asymptotic function. The best you can do is 300. There are no, I was blown away by that set in bowling comments. <laughs> and yet, that's what you guys do at work all day long, isn't it? You're bowling, trying to avoid a gutter, hoping for a strike, figuring out how to avoid getting criticized, not doing anything that hasn't been done before, and incrementally following the steps and living with the system. The problem with bowling, the problem with factories, is they will die. And the reason they will die is because they race to the bottom. If you run a factory and you race to the bottom, it's you saying, I can be a little cheaper. If you run a store, you can say, I can be a little cheaper. If you run a church, you can say, I might be a little closer to your house. Here's the problem. The problem is, if someone's racing to the bottom, you don't want to win that race. And problem number two is, someone else is probably going to win it anyway. Because there's always someone somewhere who's willing to be a little cheaper, cut a few more corners, be a little bit more convenient, go a little easier on you. And so we can't race to the bottom if we want to win. We have to race to the top. And this is where the good news starts. The good news starts right now because now there is a revolution. The revolution that is destroying the industrial revolution. And as Clay Shirky says, every revolution destroys the one before, before it creates the new one. So since you can't 
create lots and lots of great middle-class jobs with a factory. Since you can't count on scaling your business by hiring lots of competent people, what can you count on? What you can count on now is that because we are more connected than ever before, because it's easier to make stuff than ever before, because with just a few clicks, you can get someone somewhere to assemble something, type something, write something, upload something, all that's left is to make a difference. All that's left is to connect. All that's left is to matter. All that's left is to do work that people will miss if you stop doing it. We have now reached a fork in the road, and the fork is, are you going to be more obedient than everyone else or more graceful than everyone else? Graceful? Yeah, graceful, like believing or seeing or connecting or giving or living or supporting or telling the truth. Tons of stuff no one ever taught you how to do in school. Right? If you had great parents like I did, maybe they taught it to you at home. But what Graceful is about is accepting others, doing work that matters, and doing art. What Graceful is about is being that person when they leave the room, other people are sorry to see them leave. The challenge is this. The factory era was around for a really long time. It created institutions that embrace compliance. Right? Why is it that they are so freaked out about you turning off your cell phone on an airplane? Like if it was really dangerous, couldn't a bad guy just go, take this plane to Cuba, I'm going to make a phone call? <laughs> right? It's not really dangerous. What it is, is it helps out the phone companies because you'll jam up the cells if you use a phone going too fast. And it's a chance to get you to comply it's a chance to show that you're open to doing what authority tells you to do. And so what we've created at school, at work, in our spiritual institutions, in politics, is this mindset that we have to work ever harder to be more compliant than the other guy, a compliant cog in a system that wants to eat us up and make a little bit out of it. But there is a choice, and the choice is you could just be more connected that if we are now living in a connected revolution, in a place where every single person in this room is one tweet away from every other person, in a world where you're only six handshakes away from someone in Burma, in that world, being more compliant isn't how you win. You win by being more connected. Because here's the thing, in a world where people have choices, if you tell me what to do, and I don't want to do it, I'll leave. North Korea is filled with compliance. North Korea might be the most compliant country in the world. It's not working anymore. You cannot comply yourself to success. So what are the options? Well, let's talk about cupcakes for a minute. I don't know if you've ever made cupcakes, but the first time you make cupcakes, you make cupcakes. You follow the recipe, you do your best. They're probably pretty good. The second time you make cupcakes, you get better at following the recipe, complying with instructions. Now they might be really good. Then the third time comes along. Some people screw around with the recipe, try something new, push the envelope, and they fail. Now we see what happens. Because if after failing you say, oh, I learned my lesson, I'm going back to following that recipe exactly, you are on your way to being a very good cupcake maker for the rest of your life. 
Some people, however, fail at making that cupcake, and they say, you know what? I better try again and fail a different way. And then they fail a different way, because they understand that cupcake failure is not fatal. <laughs> they understand that there are no people dying in the streets whose last words are, I failed at making a cupcake. And so if we want to create a world where we can do our work, the work, we have to be prepared to fail. Every coin has two sides. There are no one-sided coins. If you want to succeed, you have to be prepared to fail and embrace it as a benefit of failing. A couple years ago, I talked to some of you about tribes. And what I explained is that tribes are at the heart of marketing, at the heart of institutions, at the heart of how ideas spread. Here's the thing. No one joins a boring tribe. No one says, I'm going to quit doing this and go join those guys because they're really average. So CMO doesn't stand for chief marketing officer. It stands for chief movement officer, right? If you're going to win, you're going to create a movement, a movement about your paintings, maybe, or a movement around your conference, or a movement around your institution. But you will not be able to create a movement by being more compliant, by demanding more compliance. You will create a movement by doing something that some people hate. You will create a movement by creating something that people talk about. How many of you have an iPhone? Right? How many of you bought it because it's the best telephone ever made? You're lying, right? It's a terrible telephone. We bought it because it's jewelry that happens to have a function. And the jewelry part is, oh, you're in the tribe. I gave you the head shake. Why are you suddenly my friend? Because we both bought the same phone. I don't know. But you are, right? And what Apple has done and become the most valuable technology company in history is they understand they're not in the technology business at all. They're in the movement business, the tribal business, the business of sending messages. And the internet, their friend, is a connection machine. Apple runs fewer ads on a percentage of sales than any other consumer technology company. They don't win because of the ads. They win because they chose to create a movement that people who want to join it can easily join. There's no forms to fill out. There's no admissions committee. You want to be in, you're in. But that movement grows because people talk about it. Boring doesn't work. Bureaucratic doesn't work. If I am going to talk about you, your institution or you, what exactly am I going to say? Am I going to talk about you and say, yeah, he's a really nice guy and he has a bowl haircut? That's no reason to talk about you. I'm going to talk about you because you're a genius. Not an Albert Einstein, reinvent the laws of physics, don't know your home address genius. <laughs> a genius with a small g. The genius who knows how to solve interesting problems. The genius who knows how to connect with people. The genius who knows how to be a human being and make a change that's worth making. We talk about geniuses all the time. The problem is, if you're going to be a genius, you can't have a boss telling you what to do all day. 
You got to figure it out. So first question is this. Without a boss in this new economy, even if you have a job, who exactly is setting your agenda? Is your agenda about mediocre obedience? Or is your agenda about relentless curiosity? And so now we get to the heart of it. And the heart of it is art. Not painting, art. Let me talk about painting for a minute. One third of all the oil paintings in the world are painted in a small village in China called Dauphin. Every morning, all the inhabitants of Dauphin wake up, run to their easels, and paint as fast as they can. You can buy the Mona Lisa for $29. Of course, it's not the Mona Lisa. It's a copy of the Mona Lisa by a guy who paints eight Mona Lisas every day. That's not art. That's painting. Art is a human act that changes someone, and it's generous. It's a gift. I cannot sell my art. I can sell a souvenir of it. You want to buy an original Jackson Pollock? That'll cost you $20 million. You want to buy an original Joseph Boys? That'll cost you five. The souvenir, the thing you own, might cost money. But the art, appreciating it, hearing Beethoven's Fifth on the radio, seeing a Picasso at the Metropolitan, Beethoven doesn't get a royalty from that, right? He's dead. But even if he wasn't dead, that's his gift. No gift, no art. That the act of being able to help someone in and of itself is the work. You get paid for something else. You get paid for doing what someone needs you to do that they're willing to pay for. But it's the gift giving. It's the connecting with people that changes the culture. You may remember that there was a ban on usury for thousands and thousands of years. No interest on loans. The reason is, with only 150 people in your nomadic tribe, if I charge you interest on a loan, if I loan you some seeds and you got to pay me back extra, we're having a business transaction. I don't know about you, but you probably don't have a great relationship with the bank that has a mortgage on your house. They're not your best friends. You don't invite them over for dinner. It's us and them. But when you loan your sister 50 bucks, you don't charge her interest. Because the 50 bucks actually brings you closer together. It's us and us, not you and me. And this idea of doing acts that bring us closer together is at the heart of what makes a connection economy work. Because if all we're keeping track of is not how efficient is the factory, but how connected you are, then the thing you need to do is your art. And once you understand what your art is, you've figured out what your purpose is. They're the same thing. And so you got to look at these words, courage and fear and generosity, and say, which ones are in my head when I wake up in the morning? When the phone rings and I can see from caller ID, it's my boss's boss calling me. Am I filled with excited anticipation and curiosity? Or am I filled with fear that I'm about to get yelled at for screwing up some small thing? Right? The old system said, don't worry, do what I say. And then they invented the printing press, and suddenly people had to think for themselves. And this thinking for themselves thing is really hard. I have this, this, this great quote from Richard Feynman, who was a brilliant scientist, won the Nobel Prize. Let me read it to you. I don't know what's the matter with people. They don't learn by understanding. They learn by some other way, by rote or something. Their knowledge is so fragile. 
Because the world changes, and that thing you memorized, that set of instructions you were following, doesn't work anymore. But when you figure out why it works, the truth of the situation, the world as it is, not the way you want it to be, you understand. And then you can do your art. The next part of art is emotional labor. Most of us do not get paid for digging ditches. I certainly don't. I wouldn't be very good at it. We get paid for a different kind of labor. The labor of doing something we might not feel like in the moment. The labor of exposing ourselves to intellectual risk. The labor of connecting with someone we might disagree with. The labor of nuance as opposed to just being jingoistic. That labor, emotional labor, is work worth doing. It lets you become an indispensable human being, what I call a linchpin. We need original thinkers. We need provocateurs. We need people who care as opposed to people who are phoning it in and doing their job. We need marketers who can lead. We need people who can make a human connection. We need people who will make change even if it means failing in the short run. And it's easy to nod your head about this, but I want you to think about how you hire people. Do you hire by looking at a resume? Isn't a resume just a piece of paper with brand names on it, proving how good you are at complying with instructions? Right? Now, I want you to think about who you hire and who you fire. Do you fire someone because they always do the right thing? Because they're not making any mistakes. Maybe you should. Or do you fire someone who makes mistakes, who offends a board member, who does something outside the boundaries? They just learned a valuable lesson and taught you one, too. So maybe we better think about what we're rewarding. We better think about what we're attracted to. Are we attracted to the same thing we saw last week? If we're not, then why are we doing it? Because it's safer, because it's easier, because it's the way we've always done it? If you think about the interactions you have with people you disagree with, with people across the aisle, with people you don't know, is it about creating a change in them that they want to find? Or is it about embracing the system? The more change we can make, the more likely it is the tribe will join us. And then the question I ask you is, how tight is that tribe? How much do the people in that tribe miss each other when they don't see each other? Because that's your opportunity. Would they miss you if you were gone? If the tribe disappeared, if they stopped broadcasting some show on television, if some club down the street or some cafe went out of business, how long before we could replace it? Because if you're at the center of a tribe that matters, people would miss you. You know, United Airlines is merging with, I don't know who, Continental. Is anyone really going to miss whichever one disappears? Or did they get that way by running a lot of ads? Because it doesn't work anymore. At this point, less polite audiences start pelting me with tomatoes and asking or demanding an answer to the following question. That's fine, Seth, but my boss won't let me. I'd love to fail often. I'd love to try new things. I'd love to organize the tribe. I'd love to put new ideas into position, but my boss or the board or some other make-believe person won't let me. Well, of course they won't. If you went to your boss and said to her, okay, I want to try this crazy scheme, 
And if it works, I'll get the credit. But if it fails, since you said it was okay, you'll get the blame, okay? Of course she's going to say no. That's her job. That's not how change is ever made. Change is made by individuals who stop seeking deniability. Because that's what you spend most of your day doing, seeking proof that it wasn't your fault. And change is made by people who eagerly accept responsibility. And a key part of this is that while you accept responsibility, you don't demand authority. While you accept responsibility, you are eager to give away credit. If you start working in your organization making tiny, tiny mistakes in front of small groups of people, and every time you fail, learning from it, and then doing it again, but better, and every time you succeed, learning from it and giving credit to your boss, no one will ever tell you to stop. Because that is, in fact, what the boss wants you to do. It's just what you're afraid of doing. That what organizations seek are linchpins. What they seek are people who will connect and lead. And what they fear, but what most employees have embraced, is the endless emergency of fitting in. You can never fit in enough. You will never be done fitting in. You will never be able to say at the end of the day, I fit in all the way today. On the other hand, like bowling, there's an alternative, which is instead of going for perfection, you can say, I made a difference today. I made two differences today. I made six differences today. So why is this so hard? Why is emotional labor so hard? The answer has to do with plastic sharks. I was going to bring a real shark, but it didn't fit in my bag. Now, here's the thing. Last year, in the United States, deer killed more people than sharks, by a lot. <laughs> and yet, if you're watching a rerun of Jaws and you hear, doo -doo 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 -doo, you don't go, oh, that's not a deer, right? We're afraid of sharks. We're even afraid of plastic sharks. I am. Why is that? Second half of the question. I got more stuff in here. We're working on it. We're working our way all the way to the bottom. Why did the chicken cross the road? The answer everyone knows is this. His chicken brain told him to. Well, psychologists have actually researched this quite a bit, and they've discovered that all wild animals have what they call the lizard brain. The lizard brain is a brain we have. It's prehistoric. It's millions of years old. It is responsible for anger, revenge, reproduction, and safety. And if you were a lizard a million years ago and you didn't have one, you weren't a lizard anymore. You were dead. The reason wild animals are wild is because their lizard brain tells them to. And here's the thing. If I put you in a functional MRI scanner, I can see yours. It's right back here. It includes your amygdala. It's elementary brain science now. Here's proof. You're on a plane. You're at 20,000 feet. You're typing up a great sermon or a letter to a friend. The plane hits turbulence. You know planes don't crash because of turbulence. So you keep typing. No, that's not what happens. You put your head between your legs, and you scream, and you scream because you're going to die. <laughs> Does the screaming help the plane stay aloft? No, of course not. 
So why did you do it? Because you had no choice. Because when the lizard is upset, it takes over. <laughs> the thing is, Steve Pressfield wrote a great book about this. His name for the voice of the lizard is the resistance. The resistance is that little whisper in the back of your head when the speaker says, any questions? And you don't raise your hand. The resistance is the voice in the back of your head that after five blog posts, you said, eh, I don't think I can blog today. I have to mow the lawn. The resistance is that little voice in the back of your head that makes it easier and safer to have another bowl of ice cream than it is to pick up a phone and have an important phone call with someone you've been avoiding. The resistance tries to keep us safe. And when there were saber-toothed tigers, it kept us alive. But now, the resistance is the enemy. The resistance, the lizard brain, it's the thing that's preventing us from doing the work that matters. I apologize for having so many airplane stories. I think I'm flying too much. I live near New York City, and every time I go to Boston, I make a mistake. Because if I drive, I know I should have flown. And if I fly, I know I should have driven. Well, I had a meeting in Boston. I flew out of White Plains. We got there in like 21 minutes. It was fabulous. I got punished on the way home. We circled and we circled and we circled for an hour. We ran out of fuel. I don't get that. And we landed in Albany instead. Nine o'clock at night. Albany is a disaster at any hour. At nine o'clock, it's really bad. So they pull up this far from the gate. The airport's clearly closed. They said, we're going to sit here for an hour or two. Then we think we'll be able to fly to White Plains. Not going to happen. So I open my laptop, plug in my modem, go online. Avis has one car left. I grab it. I then say to the flight attendant, excuse me, I really need to get off this plane. If you say it like that, they'll always let you off. So they open the door. She says, but you can't come back on. I said, that's fine. So she opens the door. And I turn to the plane. There's 18 people on. I say, ladies and gentlemen, as you can see from the fact that I'm wearing a suit and tie, I am not a psychopath. <laughs> My car is parked where yours is, in White Plains. I have rented a car from Avis. I've already paid for it. It's a sunk cost. I got room for three people. I'm driving. Anyone want to come along? It's free. And not one person stood up. <laughs> As far as I know, they're still in Albany. <laughs> Why? Because if they stay on the plane, it's United's fault. And if they get off the plane, it's their fault. And that's the heart of what I'm talking about, deniability. I want to switch gears here in the few minutes I've got left. And I want to share with you a downside of this tribe thing and how it can backfire on you. I was at a high school junior varsity soccer match a little while ago. It was a close game, but not that close. A couple minutes left. Kid gets awarded a penalty kick. Now, there's 30 parents in the stands. Penalty kick is 30 feet in front of the net. There's the kicker and the goalie. That's it. The kicker runs up, kicks the ball as hard as he can, 15 feet over the net. 15 parents from the other side cheer loudly. For what? What were they cheering for? Right? That this kid humiliated himself in front of his friends? That a meaningless soccer game wouldn't have another goal in it? That the goalie on their team wouldn't have a chance to make a save? We're creating this culture filled with politicians that are happy to divide us. 
someone running in my state who says, here's a great idea. Let's put people who are really down on their luck in prison to live. And people on one tribe go, yay. And people on the other tribe go, oh my god. Right? We've got people who say, he can't be a real blank because he doesn't do what I do. Why is it so important that the tribe win? When we think about what the goal is, what the mission is, what our art is, is it really important to prove that we're better than the other one? Or is it just that it's better to be on the winning side? Right? That the challenge we face as we look around the world, a world where everyone, everyone is getting weirder and weirder by the minute. <laughs> that nobody is exactly the same. That as communities get more and more orthodox, the outliers will always outnumber the insiders. When we think about that, when we think about the work that's worth doing, the question is, is that what we ought to focus on? Is that what we're going to keep score on? Or is that like a Wall Street guy keeping score of nothing but how many people could he foreclose on to maximize the money he's got in the bank? I think there's a better opportunity here. So I wrote a booklet. Most of it's new. I brought it for all of you. You should be getting it soon. About Graceful. And I hope you'll accept it as the gift I mean it to be, to help you think about this difference between scarcity and abundance. We're moving away from a world where everything is scarce. Either I have it or you have it. Let's fight over it. And we're moving to this connected world, this revolutionary world. What happens when you give gifts instead? So the last story I want to tell you is this. David Rakoff gave me the idea. He's at the movies. The theater's empty. He's the only guy there. This woman walks in, this weird woman walks in. And she walks right up to where he's sitting and says, I'm sorry, is that seat taken? She's a loon. But then he starts thinking about that question. Is that seat taken? Do you know how many people want your seat? Do you know how many people would give anything to have the platform you have, to have the chance you have, to have the ability that you have to do art, to do it without wondering where you're going to sleep tonight, to do it this year, not 500 years ago or 1,000 years from now, in this moment when the revolution is happening? You have a platform for your art. I am hoping that you will not waste this revolution. I am hoping that you will do work that matters. And I am hoping that you will hurry. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Awesome. We'll be back in a second with an answer to a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. (laughs) 
Hey Seth, my name is Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I... MBO.LINK and click the appropriate button. Hello, Seth. My name is Anita Posh, and I'm a Bitcoin educator and podcaster from Europe. I'm a big fan of your work. I've heard you mentioning Bitcoin in different episodes. This time, I simply had to contribute, not by asking a question, but if I may, by giving some additional information. In the episode about microtransactions, you've mentioned three basic hurdles why Bitcoin is no solution for microtransactions. I kindly disagree. While it might not be a solution now, the technical foundations are ready. You say, for one, it is too volatile. For something that people will trade, what you have bought 10 years ago for $6 ended up costing you 10,000 of dollars in today's money. That's not a microtransaction anymore. I see where you're going here. But imagine you bought that content for an equivalent of six US dollars and you kept the other four US dollars change. Might be a good deal. Or on the other hand, if you are the content creator and managed to save a little bit of these six dollars, you were paid very well. Bitcoin is volatile, that's true. But if you spend it and immediately buy new Bitcoin afterwards, you have lost nothing to volatility. Second, you say Bitcoin is not optimized for fast, tiny transactions. That is true on the Bitcoin blockchain on the base layer. But have you heard about the Lightning Network and other layer two solutions? They enable microtransactions even in very, very small sub-satoshi amounts. Lightning payments are immediately settled. No need to wait for one block, that's 10 minutes minimum. With layer 2 solutions, there is no limit to the number of payments that can be settled in seconds. Also, lightning payments give you privacy protection. They are as private and anonymous as cash transactions. And there are already solutions that let you pay for content inside messaging apps on top of the Lightning Network. For instance, there's a messenger called Sphinx, where you can pay for content inside the messaging app very easily. And the third point, you say multiple formats, different blockchains, it becomes difficult to exchange between these walled gardens. Open blockchains like Bitcoin are not walled gardens. They are quite the opposite. And there is already a solution for that. It's called atomic swaps. They allow the immediate exchange of funds on different blockchains, different platforms, without the need for an intermediary. So I argue that technology is already in place to do fast, uncensorable private microtransactions with Bitcoin. It is only not equally distributed yet. Seth, thank you very much for your work, and I'm looking forward to new episodes and insights. Thank you for this. It gives me a chance to talk about the difference between the blockchain and Bitcoin, because they are different. You can't have Bitcoin without the blockchain, but you can definitely have the blockchain without Bitcoin. The blockchain 
is a form of database. It is an open, inspectable, uncorruptible database that is shared on many, many computers. There are lots of situations where we would want there to be a registry, a ledger, a place where people can see the status of where the community is, how transactions have happened, who's booked which tickets for which event. A massively scalable open database that is hard to falsify is rare and important. And it turns out that one of the uses of the blockchain is to enable Bitcoin. Because what we need to know about Bitcoin is who spent it. Because if the system doesn't know who spent it, you could spend it over and over again, and then it fails. So what they did, we don't know who they is, is built the blockchain with Bitcoin paying for it, and Bitcoin uses the blockchain to function. So it's a virtuous cycle, back and forth they go. And one of the worst things that could happen to the blockchain is that Bitcoin became a speculative investment. A dollar, five dollars, ten dollars you could buy a Bitcoin for, and then suddenly it was $15,000. And that speculation brought in a whole bunch of people who didn't care about any of this. They were just looking to speculate. Back in the day, the Grateful Dead had a good thing going, and then they had their one and only top 40 hit. Once you have a hit, a whole bunch of different kind of people come to your concerts, and the dead were never quite the same after that. So when I talk about Bitcoin not being a useful microcurrency, that is generally accepted to be true. But the blockchain has the ability to give us a chance to create micropayments. It probably will. But it will not be adopted because the blockchain behind it is particularly robust. It will be adopted because the people who want to buy and receive micropayments find it irresistible to use. And people in tech are bad at irresistible it's going to be built by somebody else, that part of it. It's got to be the kind of thing where the network effect, plus the game theory behind it, plus the cultural bias and dynamic means that it's better to use it and receive it than it is to avoid it. So that's a short rant about micropayments and Bitcoin. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and 
we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.